Now, if you're in Romans 8, I'm going to just read three verses this morning. I'm going to begin in verse 14. So if you found that, go ahead and stand with me. We will read and then Jeremy will lead us in worship as we continue to stand. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Paul writes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this morning, uh, we continue the work of the Holy Spirit. And with the passages that I read to you this morning, there were two verbs that really kind of jump out out of those three, three, those three verses that we really have to discuss. And one of the fact that the Spirit leads us and the other one comes in verse 16 where he testifies to us. But I tell you, I spent most of my time this week just reflecting on the grace of God, the fact that we have somebody that dwells within us to lead us. And I just couldn't get away from that thought very much at all. But because of some really good questions that came up following the sermon two weeks ago where we were in Romans 8 verses 12 and 13 and talking about our obligation to do battle with sin in our life, I did want to spend a little more time with that this morning. And so we'll back into that some. I want to try to explain things there as best I can every time that we come across that in the text. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, I don't know of really anything more important than me taking the Word of God and helping all of us as we do battle with the personal sin in our life. Now you noticed I had you go Isaiah 3, Luke 3. And all. You know, normally I don't like to do that. I don't like to take from another place and bring that thought into the text that we are that's very dangerous. Uh, so I do, do want to be careful when I do that, but that's where I found myself reflecting on the fact that the Spirit of God leads us. Now we all know as fallen people, as sinful people, we do not naturally nor normally fall in the way of the Lord. We don't find that way on our own. And also, as sinful people, we don't like to be led, period. You can hear that in your children's voice. You hear that in your teenager's voice. That little phrase that goes, don't tell me what to do, is a declaration, I do not want to be led. So not only do we not want to be led, but we certainly don't want to be led in truth because that's contrary to the flesh. And so God has done something absolutely amazing in the gospel to lead us, lead stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious people in the way of the Lord. And it's a precious thing for what He's done. But to get us there, let me take you back in some Old Testament thought because there is so much imagery, so many illustrations, so many words used in the Old Testament to describe people who are under the judgment of God. And most often, if not always, I'm not even that reluctant to say always, they're under judgment because they have been led astray or they have gone astray on their own. And I'd put an and or there. They've either gone astray and or they've allowed someone to lead them astray. Therefore, they have found themselves under the judgment of God. Now, there's all kinds of words, as I mentioned, endless words. And so I was just trying to land on a couple of words for the sake of our abbreviated time on Sunday morning. But I think one of the most common words that we found or that we can find in the Old Testament that will help us understand that is the word ta'ah, literally T-A space A, or if you want to add an H, ta'ah. And it means to wander about. To just wander around, not being led, not knowing where you are or where you're going. And it's used in the context sometimes of being misled or being led astray. Now, what's good about this word is, and I love to find words like this. Nathan and I you have done a lot of work on a lot of words to help us in the understanding of things on Wednesday night and Sunday night. But ta'ah has a non-theological, non-moral, non-ethical, common everyday life usage. 
meaning simply to wonder. And a good example of that comes in Genesis 37, where Jacob sends Joseph, remember the boy with the fancy coat, to go find his other brothers, because they hadn't seen him in a while. They had taken the flock, they had gone off to find green pasture, hadn't heard from the boys in a while. And so Jacob calls Joseph and he says, now go find your brothers. This is, this is getting on a little bit too long. So Joseph goes down to Shechem, it is, and he's just wandering around in the fields. The text says that. He's wandering in the fields and a man walks up to him and says, what are you doing? Who are you looking for? And he tells them, I've come down here to find my brothers and I basically can't find them anywhere. And the man helps him, leads him to find his brother. But we get the word to wonder. This man's just walking around field after field, cutting through woods, another grassy field, can't find my brothers. He's literally just wandering around. And so we can understand this word ta'ah to just mean just wandering around. So you can see how we can take that from a non-theological easily into a theological context and understand how we wander sometimes spiritually away from God. In fact, a song that we sing very often, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, is much about spiritual wandering, right? Listen to some of the words. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter, and if you don't know what a fetter is, that's a chain. Let thy goodness like a chain bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it, right? Seal it for thy courts above. So we understand greatly about spiritual wondering. But still, I wanted us to spend some time back in the Old Testament seeing how this plays out in a spiritual context, leads to the judgment of God, and then there is this cry from the Old Testament saints of, Lord, please lead us. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we are going. So let's do some of that this morning. Let's go back to Isaiah, if you will, chapter 3. And I think it will help you really get a grasp of our desperate need to be led. Isaiah chapter 3. Now I want you to look with me in verse 1 because you immediately pick up the context of what's going on in Isaiah chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah. So we're talking about the people of God immediately. But notice what God's going to take away. Both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the honorable man, the counselor, the artisan, the skillful enchanter. I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them. In other words, I'm taking everything away from you. Everything that you lean on, I'm pulling out from under you. Now, the reason that he's doing that is found in verse 8. Notice verse 8. For Jerusalem, God's people has stumbled and Judah has fallen because, here you go, this is why God is doing that. Their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. So we know exactly what's going on. We know what God is doing. We know why God is doing it. But look at this particular reason that God brings up in verse 12, that He's angry about this. Same chapter, Isaiah 3, verse 12. O oh, my people, their oppressors are children. Women rule over them, which is a, an intentional slight from the Lord. O oh, my people, those who, notice, guide you, here's our word, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your path. You see that? The Lord is saying you've been paying attention to very bad leadership. In fact, if you read on down in the chapter, in verse 14, the Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of His people. He's angry at leadership. And He's saying, you've led my people astray to awe. You've led them out and they're just wandering about. Now, I find it fascinating, though, that not only is He angry at the leaders from doing this, He's mad at the people. And that's where you get the slight, this... This cut that the Lord takes about children and women ruling over you. He's saying, you'll bow your back to anybody. Why are you letting people like this lead you around? You're accountable for these things. 
And so God is bringing judgment on His people because they have allowed themselves to be led astray by leadership of the nation. Now it gets worse because God's always trying to work repentance. So we get false leadership from a much more important group. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to begin reading in verse 8. Notice judgment again, Isaiah 9, verse 8. The Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel. So again, judgment is against the people of God. And God has already done something and yet they've not repented. Look at verse 12. The Arameans are on the east, the Philistines are on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaw. He's already brought people against them in war. But notice what takes place down in verse... There's another cut the Lord takes. Notice verse 14. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch significance and bulrush insignificance in a single day. He names the head. The head is the elder, the honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. You know what he just called the prophets? You're the rear end. And he did it on purpose. He's not speaking to the head. He names them as honorable men, but then he calls the tail the prophets because he's furious at what the prophets have done. Now look at the very next passage. Verse 16, For those, the prophets who teach falsehood is the tail, they are those who guide this people and are leading them, our word again, to awe, leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Here it is again. It's not princes and elders. It's not the leadership. It's not the civil leadership of the people. Now it's the prophets that are preaching false things and they're leading the people into confusion. And God's angry at the prophets. You could pick that up from the text, but he's holding the people accountable. Which gives me cause to pause and tell you, you're always supposed to hold me accountable for what I do in this pulpit. Every single one of you. And here's the measure. That is the only measure, and that's why you can do that. That's why a child that's been converted by Christ can hold me accountable, because the standard's the Word. I'm not the standard. Therefore, God says, you people are accountable because you've let that fool go on from the pulpit, and he's led you astray, and you've bowed down to him easily enough. God's angry. But, ultimately, Isaiah 53 will put the blame on every single one of us. So go with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And let me show you one more if I don't show you two. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6. Isaiah, by the way, loves this word. Isaiah 53 verse 6. Now we're not talking about civil leaders government leaders. Now we're not talking about preachers or prophets. Now we're talking about you. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. There's your word, to awe. Each of us has turned to his own way. In other words, if you want to think about or consider why it is that you wonder about spiritually, you can blame it on leadership and he might be right. You can blame it on the prophet or the preacher and you might be right. But ultimately, it falls on you because you've led yourself astray from the things of God. Every single one of us wander about spiritually. Now there's a promise. Let's get there while we got a moment. I know I'll make us long. Isaiah 30, back up just a little bit. There is an eschatological promise that's coming to the people of God that's found in Isaiah chapter 30. And it comes in verse 20 and 21. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20 and 21. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, although you've been under judgment, He, your teacher, will no longer hide Himself but your eyes will behold your teacher. And verse 21 is precious. 
Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. That's the promise that's coming. It's like a dad resting his hand on his son's shoulder and going, oh, let's go this way. And let's don't go that way. That's not the way to go. But let's go this way. So that was the promise that's coming. And that's the promise that we have partially realized in the gospel through the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a great thing. And the older you get, the wiser you get, and the more that you desire the Lord to put His hand on top of your head and just guide you around walking along His way in every decision, in every thought, in every action, in every word. Some days I catch myself and I wish the Lord had His hand over my mouth and said, okay, I'll let that word out, but I'm not letting that word out. We long for the intimate, personal guidance of God in our lives in every area. And through the gospel, we begin to see that very thing realized. So you go trotting off to Romans 8. And I'll share some psalms with you. There's another word, as you head back to Romans 8, there's, there's a better word that we find in the Old Testament. It's not used as much. It sounds very similar. Instead of the ta'ah, it's naha. Starts with an N, not with a T, and it's got a ch in the middle of it. So it's pronounced naha. And it also means led, but most every time that it's used, you're being led in the right way. Let me give you one example. Nehemiah comes in Nehemiah 9:12, and with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night. In other words, when the Lord led his people in that way in the desert, this word was used, Naha, because he was leading them in his way. Now, out of when you start looking through the Old Testament about that glorious word, you're like, Naha, that's the word that we want. We want the Lord guiding us. Guess what book you find that word in more than any other place? In the Psalms, because the psalmist is begging the Lord to lead us. And when I found that, I was just absolutely thrilled to my soul. It's like, of course, it's going to be here because the psalmist is always pleading with God. Now, let me just read a few of these. And if you want chapter and verse after the sermon, I'd be glad to give it to you. I know you're in Romans 8, but I couldn't lead you around everywhere. But just listen to the psalmist in some of these places. Psalms 5. O oh Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Psalms 25, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. 27, teach me your way, O oh Lord. Lead me in a level path. 31, you're my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. 43, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling place. In other words, the psalmist is begging, God, lead me into your presence. That's where I want to be. Psalm 61, you're, I know you're familiar with this. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Psalms 130, 139, he uses it several times. If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me for the child of God. Two more, Psalms 139. Lord, see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. And then Psalms 143, the last reference to me is the most interesting by far. Listen to what the psalmist says here. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. We're still in the Old Testament. Yet the last reference that we find to it in the psalmist, he specifically asked for the spirit of God to lead him on level ground. So now you're back in Romans 8. When we come into Romans 8 and we see the promise of the gospel, we see the Spirit given to us. And we talked about that in verse 8 and 9. If you have the Spirit, or rather if you have Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And if you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, then you have Christ. 
And so we see very clearly that through the gospel, we are given the Spirit of God. And as you begin to realize, think through and study all the things that the Spirit of God does for you, right now I'm landing with this one on the top because He has to lead us in all that He does for us. You understand? Everything that He does, He's leading us in those particular things. And that's why we have verse 14. Look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. In other words, if you're a child of God, this is exactly what the Spirit of God's doing in you. He's leading you. And I couldn't get past that thought this week. I could not get that from my heart, my mind. I just was overwhelmed at the reality that God loves us so much that He put His Spirit within us to lead us. And when you get to thinking about that, you certainly don't want to lead yourself. And all of a sudden, you're so protective about who you're going to let lead you. And if you're a man, you need to be really protective about who you're going to let lead your family spiritually. Because it's on you. All of a sudden, leadership becomes so precious to you because you know what God has done through His Holy Spirit to lead you. And I could talk for the rest of this sermon about particular times in our life of where we sensed and saw the Spirit of God leading us. And sometimes I didn't even realize it. You take about when the Lord led me out of being a pharmacist and owning my own store and led me to the Northwest. I thought I was going out there for different reasons. But the Holy Spirit knew where we were going and He knew what the will of God was and what He was doing. And so He led me in the things of God and the whole time I didn't even, I, I thought I was wondering about. But I wasn't wondering about. The Lord had His hand upon my head and He was leading me, accomplishing the things that He was going to do in my family's life. Because when I quit, I told the Lord specifically, y'all remember, I'll do anything but pastor an American church. Not doing that. They're way too messed up. But by the time I came back, I was weeping on behalf of the American church, begging God for the opportunity. He was leading. I thought I was wondering. But He was accomplishing everything that He wanted to do in my life and in the life of my family. Isn't it good that God loved us enough to put a leader within us even when we don't know where we're going or what we're doing? It's exactly what He is accomplishing. Now, back to Romans 8. What is the immediate context that Paul tells us this wonderful truth that the Spirit of God is leading us. What is the very first thing that he leads us in? Well, look at verse 14. And remember, it started with a for or a so. And so we can back up to verse 13, 12 and 13 and understand the context. Halfway through 13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So what's one of the initial places that the Spirit of God leads us in? Putting to death the sin in our personal life. It's like job one. Let me lead you to put to death the sin in your life. And when I preached it two weeks ago, I could tell you all under conviction. In fact, you all had some funny comments about being under conviction. But I told you... There aren't any commands in 12 and 13. They're just statements of fact. They're truths. The Spirit of God does these things. He leads you in putting to death the sin in your life. And yet we seem so unconcerned about that at times, right? But He's not so easily discouraged. He is going to do that in your life. He is going to put down that sin. When you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, do you remember the very first thing the Spirit of God led Him to do? He was baptized in Luke 3. The heavens opened up. The Spirit of God descended upon Him like a dove. You had the Father speaking from heaven. This is the Son of my love, right? And then chapter 4, verse 1 begins with this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. Job one. We're going to go be tested for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, doing battle against Satan. 
Now let me be clear. The Spirit of God does not lead you in battle against Satan. I've heard language like that over the years, and that is absolutely absurd and crazy. It turns out we're not charging the gates of hell with a water pistol. No matter how many youth leaders tell their kids that. We can't do that. But what you can do, He can lead you into battle against the own, your own sin, your own lusts, and your own desires. He not only can do that, that's exactly what He does. It was the Lord Jesus that was led into battle with Satan. It's Joey that's led into battle with his own foolish and sinful desires. So that's where we battle. Now, again, a lot of great questions that were asked over the sermon from several different people. But let me go over just a few things and then we'll go on to how the Lord leads us and two other things this morning. Number one, let me give you some constants. I was trying to break this down in the most thoughtful and careful way for you because I know that y'all are all concerned about the sin in your life. So let me give you some absolute constants. And constants number one, of the thing that you can depend on without question is, it is absolutely a war. The Bible uses this language, and I love what 1 Peter chapter 2 says in this language, or how he describes it. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. In other words, don't think this is going to be easy. I know we have a tendency to look around at other people's lives and go, well, they don't struggle with that. Don't ever get the impression that it is easy. The things you struggle with is an absolute all-out war. And it is a spiritual war. It's not just a physical war, because here's another constant. Ephesians 6.12, Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a physical war. How nice would it be to grab pride around the throat and beat him down into a pulp and leave him lying in the yard? I would love that. How great would it be to get immorality in a chokehold until he couldn't breathe in your life anymore and drop him dead? That would be glorious. But the truth of the matter is, the sin in our life are not physical issues, they're spiritual issues. Hence, we must rely upon the Holy Spirit. So these are our constants. It's a war. It's a spiritual war. But let me give you some constants about the Spirit of God that's always true. I'll give you three. Number one, He's powerful. He's what you've been given to do battle. And the first thing that you need to know about the one that's on your team, so to speak, is he's absolutely powerful. You do realize if you're born again, you're born of the Spirit. It was he who raised you from the dead. He's powerful enough. It was he who brought you out of darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God through the preaching of the gospel. Yes, but it was the work of the spirit. The spirit that rests within you is more powerful than you've ever even considered or could possibly imagine. There's ridiculous power residing in you and it comes from God through the spirit and it affects your life. The second constant that you need to know about the Spirit is not only is He powerful, but He's particular. He only works in one way, and that's through the Word of God. He doesn't need schemes. He doesn't need programs. He doesn't need plans. He doesn't need old wives' tales. He doesn't need any sort of homeopathic medicine. He doesn't need any of those things because what he has is the Word of God and he knows that the Word of God is powerful. In fact, it was the Word of God that gave creation to everything in all of existence. So he relies upon the Word and the Word alone. And let me go on to say this. The only thing that he'll ever whisper in your ear, I don't know if you heard Oprah yesterday giving her speech to graduates. Absolutely absurd. Listen to that small whisper, that small voice in your ear. That's the kind of things graduating kids get. Let me, let me tell you the voice. It is the Word of God. And we jokingly say, if you want to hear God speak, read the Word. And if you want to hear God audibly, read the Word out loud. But that's true, by the way. And the Spirit of God will always speak to you in accordance with the Word of God. He's not going to share with you some mystical secret He's not going to share with you some wives' tale. He's going to share with you truth. And if you'll recall, I started to take you here. There's a number of places in John where Jesus says, Oh, no, these aren't my words. 
Jesus said, these are the words of the Father. I don't speak on my own. And you're like, wait a minute. If the Lord Jesus didn't come down here to shoot from the hip and share what's on His heart, what do you make think the Spirit of God's going to do that lives within you? He's not shooting from the hip or sharing from the heart. He's speaking the truth of God's Word into your life. So these are constants. He's powerful. He's particular. And then lastly, He's, he's personal. He knows what's up. Look at verse 26 of Romans 8. Look at verse 26. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't even know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what's up with you. He knows it's a spiritual battle and He knows what's wrong with your heart. The Holy Spirit is the very best among physicians because He always administers the right medication for the cure. He's not guessing. The Holy Spirit is the only one that's not practicing medicine. He's perfected it. And He knows exactly what to say. And He knows exactly what to pray because He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. Now let me give you the variable. I've given you all the constants. There's only one variable It's your response. That is the only variable in this whole equation in your battle with sin. It is your response. I gave you three words when we were together a couple of weeks ago. Submission, dependence, and obedience. And those still ring true. We submit our lives to the Holy Spirit. We are dependent upon His work in our lives. And we must be obedient to the Word of God that He speaks into our lives. Therefore, when we talk about submission, we're talking about humility and repentance. Let me ask you this. And I, I, don't, I don't mean to punch you. I'm punching myself when I say this, okay? And I wrote it down. If you know you have a struggle, do you realize the only reason it's a struggle is because you're refusing to humble yourself and obey? That's where the struggle comes from. The Spirit of God is not struggling. The Word of God never struggles. The only reason we struggle is because we love it too much to lay it down. We refuse to humble ourselves and obey to the work of the Spirit in our life. Does that mean then if it's all the work of the Spirit, and certainly it is, we depend upon the Spirit, as I say, we obey the Spirit of God at work in our life. Does that mean there's nothing physical? Because I got that question asked, and I would like to say, absolutely, that does not mean there's nothing physical. In other words, yes, sometimes there's some physical things that you need to do. Let me give you an example. It's found over in Acts 19. Let me read it to you. Paul's in Ephesus, he's preaching the gospel, and this is what the Word of God says. Many of those who are now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. I can't imagine, Steve and I have talked about this passage, I can't imagine how Paul must have felt when they brought out that many books that were that worth that much money and they poured gas on them and struck a match. I bet Paul went to dancing in the joy of the Lord. Now let me ask you something. Was it necessary to burn the books? I think it was a great idea. But the books weren't the problem. The problem was what was going on in the people's heart that they would want the book to begin with. That's why the text leads out the people came confessing and repenting. You see, the Spirit had already done the work in their heart. He had already changed what was going on inside of them, and the burning of the books was merely fruit of what had already taken place. So if you pick up some kind of program and say, let's burn books, you're not doing anything to change the heart because the problem rests with inside of you. And that's where change must take place first. And once change takes place, you're like, I'll light the match. I really don't care. I'll burn it all down. So when we come to the things of physical issues, we understand 
Yes, there are things that you need to do, but keep in mind 2 Corinthians 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. Where's the stronghold? It's in here, and I can't drop a match on that. Man, if you're doing things online that you shouldn't do, burn the computer. Take it outside and beat it against a rock. But I still have compassion towards you because you still haven't changed what's inside of you that's causing you to do what you're doing. You have to have the Spirit. It is only by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. And once he does that work, you're like, I don't, I don't care if I, if I need it, I'll have it. If I don't, don't need it, I don't have it. It doesn't matter to me. It's not the issue anymore because God has affected change in my heart. I have a new desire and I can't do that. You can't do that. A program can't do that. Twelve steps can't do that. The only one who can do that is the Spirit of God working in the spirit of you. And he can do it all day. So we have to submit ourselves. You say, well, what about prayer? Oh, I would pray without ceasing. I would pray without. What about fasting? That would be tremendous. If you want to do that, do that. That's great. That really expresses to God that you're serious. I'd rather have a new heart than eat any day of the week. If you get to that place, do it till you're blue in the face. I just don't want you to come under the impression that you can physically take care of spiritual issues. And this is how every battle will end. Every single battle will end up with you bended knee upon a battlefield, bloody and bruised, praising God for the fact that He has changed your heart. Every single battle ends that way. But sometimes you go to bed bloodied and bruised and not changed. But you know what you find in the morning? New mercies. And you wake up in the morning in the midst of new mercies and you pick up your sword and you pick up your shield and you go running back out on that battlefield. Because it's still a war. And you long for the day when God does the work in your heart. And you find yourself on your knees praising God. How long does that take? I really don't know. Some things seem so simple and yet some things seem so difficult. But however long it takes, there's three things that you absolutely cannot do. Number one, justify it. Don't you ever justify your sin. Don't you ever. The second thing is, don't you ever quit marching, running onto a battlefield. Don't you ever quit. The only day you can quit is when we roll your body through that door and somebody's talking over you. That's the day to quit. Because that's the day you've won all battles. And the last thing is, never turn to something or someone else. Don't ever do that. And I know we live in an age where it's so easy to do that. Because let's say, pick on Cody, let's say Cody walks through something and he walks through something successful and he puts it all down. What we're tempted to do, and I believe we're led astray when we do it is, Cody goes, well, one two, three. This is what did it for me. And all of a sudden, Cody's selling books at Lifeway because he's got this program and he just wants to share with people, if you wrestle with this, it's one, two, three, it's A, B, C. And no, it's not. It is the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. It is His work. You know, we've let, speaking of people leading us astray, we've let Rick Warren lead the church astray for so many years. First, it was the purpose-driven life, the purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven youth ministry. And if that were not enough, now it's celebrate recovery. And finally, he picked, I think it was three women to be his pastors now that he's retired. And so now the SBC is like, okay, we're done with Rick Warren. I'm like, you should have been done years ago. You should have been done 20 years ago when he began to lead the church astray away from what the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing in our life. You know what Celebrate Recovery is? It's 12 steps. One, two, three, follow me. We'll get rid of it. Just follow me. That's how the world thinks. 
It's not how the spirit works. And so we need to be careful in these things. Now, I must move on. There's a few two other things that I want to cover quickly this morning that the spirit of God leads in. We're still on this subject of leadership. Secondly, he, he leads us in a particular attitude toward God. And then thirdly, he confirms in us through testimony the attitude that God has toward us. Now look at verse 15. Paul uses some funny language here that's hard to understand. He mentions the Spirit twice, but I don't think either reference is about the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans 8.15. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now we know the Holy Spirit's in 14. We know the Holy Spirit's in 16. But I believe he's, con he's talking about a different spirit here. I believe he's talking about the spirit within us, the attitude within us toward God. So what the spirit is doing is giving us a spirit or an inner attitude toward God by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And we don't understand how precious that is. So let me try to get you there in just like two minutes. In the Northwest, there were two pastors that didn't like each other. And this is not a joke, nor is it a McDougal. But they argued. And they argued often about God's fatherhood over who? One argued that because he created all things, he was the father of all things. And I'm like, I get that. And there's a couple of passages. Okay, maybe. The other was like, absolutely not. He's father only of his children. Which I get because there's a whole lot of passages that speak to that reality. He's the Father. But what Paul is doing here, he's driving us into this intimate, personal relationship that we have with God to which we cry out to Him, My Father, if you will, or Abba Father. Now there's a couple of times that this phrase is used in Scripture. One time is over in Galatians 4, 6. Exact same context, exact same words. Paul writes there, because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit of His Son into which we cry out, Abba, Father. But I told you a couple of weeks ago, that's not the precious place. The precious place is in Mark 14, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He's about to go to Calvary. And He's begging God, if there's any way possible, take this cup from me. And guess what He calls God in that moment? Abba, Father. It's personal. It's relational. It's intimate. And Jesus cries out to the Father in that way. Now, you've probably forgotten, but you do realize that's one of the reasons Jesus was crucified. Because He referred to God as His Father. When they were judging or questioning Jesus in that trial, they asked Him if He was the Son of God. And He says, yeah, it is as you say. That so offended them because if Jesus says that he's specifically the son of God, that means he's equal with God because God is his personal father. And they crucified him for that. They were OK as a nation saying God is our father. But you didn't say God is my father because that made you equal with God. Think about me and Jonathan. I've got one son. And there's only one boy on this planet that can refer to me as my, yeah, as his father, his personal father. He can say my father. If you said it, it'd be kind of weird. But through the work that Christ has done, Paul is teaching us that now we too can cry out my father because we've been brought into a relationship with him like no other. We are literally the sons of God and the daughters of God through which we cry out, Abba, Father. Interesting place that this takes place is over in John 20. Jesus is out of the tomb. Mary comes up to him and Jesus tells her this. Go to my brethren and say to them, I'm sending you to my father and your father. In other words, Jesus is like, this relationship's changed now. You can refer to me as my Father and my God. Father in heaven. I know I'm running through this quick, but I don't want to keep you too long. Now, Spirit leads us in one more thing. Look at verse 16. And this is so important. This is ridiculously important and precious. Notice what the Spirit does. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God.
Now the word testify is actually as it's exactly as how you think. It is to provide supporting evidence by testifying. He's he's providing evidence for us. But what you what's unique in the Greek is it has a prefix on it, and this prefix is to the highest degree of strengthening something. It's the soon prefix. In other words, he's really putting emphasis on the fact that he is testifying to us that you are indeed the sons of God or you are indeed a child of God. Now, I've got a friend, a very good friend, that this is his whole ministry. In fact, he works with drug addicts and other addicts and he tries to convince them and they need to know that they're a child of God. One of the reasons he does that is because that's exactly what God delivered him out of drug addiction with. He said, I came to the reality that I was now a child of God. Why would I ever want to live like how I was living? Why wouldn't I only want to live in the way that reflected who I am? I'm a child of the king. And so his entire ministry is based around the fact of communicating that reality. You're a child of the king. Now, I wouldn't base the whole ministry around that, but you really do need to understand that. You're not who you were. You have a new father. You are indeed the sons and the daughters of God. And I don't think anybody puts this any better than John in 1 John 3. Where John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we be called children of God, and such we are. That's something you just got to ponder and meditate and realize in your own life. You've been adopted into a new family. You have a new father. You have a heavenly father. And you are literally, not figuratively, you are literally a child of a king. You are the child of God. In other words, act like it, John would go on to say. Now, let me close with this, because hopefully you've realized this. These ministries of the Holy Spirit, especially this last one, where He's testifying to us and strengthening our inner man to where we indeed realize we're a child of God, it is very subjective. It's personal. It's experiential. And if you've been here for the last almost 10 years now, you realize I'm so careful right here. The reason I'm careful with the subjective side of the Holy Spirit is because we have an entire population of people that's only where they live. Everything about the Holy Spirit is subjective and experiential. And I rail against that because they forget that the work of the Holy Spirit is objective because the Word of God is concrete. In other words, you have people that come to you and go, well, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that the Holy Spirit led me to divorce my spouse. And I'm like, no, He didn't. I mean, there are biblical reasons for that, and I know people have been very obedient in that. But I also know a lot of people who've never been obedient in that. And they say, because they want to use a trump card, oh, the Spirit led me in that. I've seen pastors abuse a whole body one time because they didn't have money, yet he wanted to buy something, so he went ahead and bought it. And you know what he said? This is how the Lord led me. I'm like, what is that, a trump card you're playing up there? And so we wind up doing anything we want to do and we hang this little tag on it. The subjective work of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit of God led me and so this is what I did. And I want to say baloney. He leads objectively, but His leadership is subjective, experiential, personal. And you know it when He does it. The reality is He does both. He does both. And we don't need to be afraid of it. The Spirit of God does lead. And He does lead in wonderful and miraculous ways. I remember I told you the story of when I quit. One of the deacons of that church came to me and he says, I think you're making a mistake. You have no idea what you're walking away from. To which I responded, I know what the Spirit of God is leading me in. His leadership is experiential. I didn't get an email. I didn't get a text message. I just knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Spirit of God was leading my family to do exactly what we did. But at the very same time, I know a woman who stands behind a pulpit every Sunday and preaches and says, 
the Spirit of God led me to do this, to which I would say, not at all. I know I've got to get this church in 1 Corinthians to explain all that. But no, He did not. You see what we do? I say all that to be very careful, to, to warn you to be very careful. I want you to be led by the Spirit. I want you to tell me this is how the Spirit is leading me. But I also want you to know the measure is found in a book of whether He did that or not. And if how He leads you runs contradictory to any word, any comma in this book, He's not leading you. Because this is what He's manifesting in your life. Now let's turn to salvation and we're done. This is why I told you last week, I'm so careful. I can preach the gospel. I can explain the gospel. I can show you the gospel in the book. But what I can't do is the subjective work of the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. Some men manipulate through emotions because we, if I had a, a math board up behind me or a marker board, I would put emotions equals not Holy Spirit because we're absolutely convinced that they're one and the same. No, they're not. I bet a lot of people were got emotional at the Taylor Swift concert this weekend. And I bet that if you could have turned her music off and put them in a particular place without any context and put a preacher up behind a pulpit and did some kind of meme, you were thinking they were just absolutely filled with the Spirit at that concert. And they certainly were not. Right? Emotions doesn't equal Spirit. Yet, when the Spirit works, it is an emotional experience. That's why I don't play there. I'm not him. I'm not going to tell you stories about puppies dying in car wrecks and then open up the altar. It's not going to happen. But what I am going to do is explain the truth to you and then get on my knees and pray for you and beg that the Spirit of God change who you are from the inside out. And we've done that as a church for the last almost 10 years. And look what the Lord has done. Oh, Ted's still at church. And I could go around the room, the men that I've baptized, they're still coming. We don't have to say around here, I can think of one name, that we baptize them, but where are they? We don't say that. We don't have to say that. And that's why I ask you, please be patient with your children. Please be patient with your children. And let the Spirit of God do the work in their heart. Don't get ahead of the Spirit. He's the fruit picker but we can plant the truth in their hearts and pray. Speaking of prayer, we need to now.